say my favorite things, and I'm going to show up with a stack of books. <laughs> Who'd have known? It's good to be here this morning. <sighs> so how are y'all? I don't know about you, but like, it's hard to be human some days. Um, there are like no end of breaking news emails from the New York Times that say distressing things, and um, it's hard to know sometimes how to keep moving on without giving up hope. Um, so I was kind of glad when somebody helpful, like Jill, said, why don't you just preach about my favorite things? That's a really good idea. So I found I couldn't quite get away from all the bad news because some of my favorite things right now are perspective shifts like that, that are acknowledging all the bad news and looking for hope in them. But I also think, so there, there's going to be a little bit of that, um, but I also think this idea of favorite things speaks to the topic of desire, which is one that... I'm frankly still working on. I haven't got that. Someday I'll do a sermon for you on desire, but I'm not ready for that yet. It's still this kind of newish idea. Because I was sort of taught that desire was at the very least suspect, if not downright just to be avoided. Um, I grew up Roman Catholic and military, and yeah, life wasn't really about desire. Um, except maybe it is. But we're going to come sideways around to that. But that, that's a theme going through things. Um, this is me talking. So those of you who know me at all, even just a little, will not be surprised that it's going to be about our seventh principle, this interconnection, that we are not ever alone, this idea we are always bound up with the rest of creation, with the rest of existence, that that is, in fact, the basis for everything that we are. Um, and I think it's also the basis for all our other principles as well. Um, and then running through all of what are currently some of my favorite things are um, this need to keep remembering, reexamining, reinvigorating our values, to hone our coping skills for tough times. So I have a bunch of poems and a couple of stories that are some of my favorites. Um, and I'm just going to launch into this, and um, I hope you find something here that appeals to you, that inspires you, gives you courage and strength. Um, and if, if, if not, let me encourage you to be inspired to find your own favorite things, because I think we all need those right now. So, when I hear the phrase, my favorite things, I go immediately to the sound of music. And, of course, the phrase there is, these are a few of my favorite things. I thought, well, that's true. These are not my absolute favorite things. You will never hear me give a sermon that's my, you know, top three favorite things because I'm never, ever going to be able to make those decisions. These are kind of random. These are the things that were on my bookshelves that have come across my desktop recently that, that helped me, that have focused my thinking. So, but I thought, oh, The Sound of Music. And then I thought about that scene in the movie. I hope you know it. If not, maybe you should watch The Sound of Music. I don't know. If you're not a musical person, don't. But The Sound of Music is fun. But in that scene, there's a thunderstorm. 
And the kids come into their brand new nanny, governess, whatever her role is there, her room, and they're, they're scared. The little ones come first. Then the big ones come and say, oh, no, we're not scared. We just wanted to make sure you are okay. But the point is they gather. Something scary is happening, and they come together. They check in with each other. They provide comfort and solace, and it ends in singing and dancing. And this is happy. And, a, you know, a reasonably good song. Um, so yeah, this is not a bad, a bad strategy for when times are scary. Go be with people. Tell them about what you're scared of. Wear comfy clothes. Pajama parties are always best. And maybe get to singing and dancing. But the point is you, you remember that there are good things in the world, and you do it together with people. Um, and the message of that scene in the movie, in my mind anyway, is that this this being together, singing and dancing in your pajamas always leads to good things, even if the party gets interrupted by someone grouchy. Which it does. So, in um, my own wanderings through um, some, of the, some of the difficult things we're trying to think through as a culture recently, um, including white supremacy, racism, anti-racism, trying to learn to be anti-racist and anti-oppressive. Um, I've had these moments of thinking, I think maybe for some of us, uh, privileged people, people who haven't known as much pain, um, as much discrimination <coughs> as others, it might be time for us to just shut up and sit down and listen. And this has just been my own private thought. I haven't actually said this, and I'm not actually saying it to you either. It's just this is what my reaction has been some this summer, and it's been kind of what I've been trying to do is just sit down and think, listen better. But then I found a quotation from Rumi, who, of course, is like, you know, centuries and centuries before us, right? 13th century. And he has a poem entitled The, the Edge of the Roof. I don't like it here. I want to go back. According to the old knowers, if you're absent from the one you love, even for one second, that ruins the whole thing. There must be someone. Just to find one sign of the other world in this town would be enough. You know the great Chinese Simurg bird got caught in this net. And what can I do? I'm only a wren. My desire body, don't come strolling over this way. Sit where you are. That's a good place. When you want dessert, you choose something rich. In wine, you look for what is clear and firm. What is the rest? The rest is mirages and blurry pictures and milk mixed with water. The rest is self-hatred and mocking other people and bombing. So just be quiet and sit down. The reason is you are drunk, and this is the edge of the roof. And I, I found here another way community helps. Sometimes reminds us that we're getting over, we're getting worked up. We're getting a little crazed. We're getting drunk on something. Who knows? Um, and, and the people who love us remind you, now might be a good time to sit down and be quiet. And we get told that in all kinds of ways. It gets, that, that is a possibility offered to us. Um, and I... I just like that quotation, partly because it just echoed something that was already in my head, but partly because I think it, it is an apt response. It is a, is a way we keep each other safe. We point out, oh, you know, there's the edge of the roof. We're about to go over. Let's just, let's just sit down. Let's just sit down. 
So that kind of brings me to an old favorite poem of mine. You may know it. I imagine you will at least know the last couple of lines. Um, but while we're on the, on the subject of sitting down, The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So one of the things I think about a lot lately is this idea of attention and what value there can be in learning to pay attention to see, to hear the things and the people around us. Um, and Mary Oliver, just always Mary Oliver. Sometimes the things we do for each other come down to encouragement. And I, I haven't heard anybody talk about this much. I think I read about it maybe in a New York Times column. But Lin-Manuel Miranda, before he became famous for Hamilton, apparently was a big force on Twitter, which I don't engage in the Twitter sphere at all. Not a bit. I hear that it's lots of fun and interesting things happen there. But apparently he had taken up the habit of writing good morning and good evening um, tweets just to anybody who was following him. And... Um, I'm going to skip. His introduction is all in rhyme, his introduction to this book. But at some point, a year or two ago, he collected a lot of these and illustrated them. They're really fun. But um, I want to just uh, give you a few of these as examples. Because I think he, this is, these are wise words in short form, made publicly available. Good morning, he said. Be at home in your head. Make sure joy is well fed. Don't let dread hog the bed. Good night now and rest. Today was a test. You passed it. You're past it. Now breathe till unstressed. Good morning, friendos. Make good choices. Listen to your inner voices. Good night, friendos. Make good choices. Live your life and raise your voices. He says in the introduction, I do want you to know this. He says, I don't have a book of quotations or wisdom I pull from the shelf. Most often the greetings I wish you are the greetings I wish for myself. So if I write relax, then I'm nervous. Or if I write cheer up, then I'm blue. I'm writing what I wish somebody would say, then switching the pronoun to you. So on another day, we can guess how we're all feeling. 
The world changes, the ground shifts, we still make plans, we still find gifts. Good morning. The world changes, the earth spins, we grieve our losses, we eke out wins. Good night. Good morning. Untie just one of the knots in your stomach. Cross one thing off your list. Call one loved one and surprise them with some kindness. Damn, look at all the room you made for something new, kid. Good night. There are still knots in your stomach. Mine, too. A good night's rest won't undo them completely, but it loosens their grip and softens the strands. Close your eyes and make room for something new, kid. Good morning. You are perfectly cast in your life. I can't imagine anyone but you in the role. Go play. Good night. You are perfectly cast in your life. And with so little rehearsal, too. It's a joy to watch. Thank you. There are other good ones in there, too. They're all in pairs. It's all good night and good, I mean, good morning and good night. And I just like that. I just like those. Another thing that has come across my desk very recently, it's just been published by the New York Times Magazine. They have a new project. It's called the 1619 Project. And you might want to go check it out. It's about the history of slavery in America. Um, it's a major initiative of the New York Times observing the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. There was a slave ship in August of 1619 that brought the first African slaves to this continent. Um, they were bought by um, settlers in the British colony of Virginia. Um, so this project... In, in the words of the New York Times, aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding, and placing the consequences of slavery and the contribution of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. And what was very interesting, and to me ultimately hopeful and encouraging, was that the, the sort of lead article in this, there's essays and artwork that are part of this project. But the, the lead article was set out um, was written by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And she talks about how her father, she's an African-American, and talks about how her father, who was a veteran, always flew an American flag outside their house and always kept it in great shape. As soon as it started fraying, would put a new one out. And she never understood this. In her youth, she thought he was capitulating to race, the racism that still existed because she'd been taught in school that the flag wasn't really hers, black people's, Amer African-Americans' flag, um, that their history as a people began with enslavement and that they hadn't contributed very much. And um, she re comes to realize, and she talks about in this essay, how she understood so little she says, my father knew exactly what he was doing when he raised that flag. He knew that our people's contribution to building the richest and most powerful nation in the world were indelible, that the United States simply <coughs> would not exist without us. 
She says later on, black Americans have been and continue to be foundational to the idea of American freedom. More than any other group in this country's history, we have served generation after generation in an overlooked but vital role. It is we who've been the perfectors of this democracy. And um, yeah, I'll let you go find the essay and read it. But I found this idea that there, we have always had communities committed in different ways to the ideals of this country and people who would not let go of them, would not give up on them, no matter how badly we butchered implementation of those ideals. I find that hugely, hugely um, inspiring. And um, it gives me hope for what we can all do if we will sit and listen and talk with each other. A strategy that seems to me to be important in um, dealing with the times we find ourselves in is acceptance. And this is not unrelated to humility, which we've talked about before. I'm pointing to Amy because I, I know it's your favorite, one of, one of your favorite ideas. Um, there's a quotation from the poet Galway Kennel, or Kennel, I'm not sure how to say it, but I like this. Whatever happens, Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. And what I hear there is a, a resistance to trying to figure out what ought to be, for a moment at least, and to come to terms with what is. What is happening, what has happened, what is the what is in which we live, and to insist that that, we have that, that we not be separated from that. Um, and I find some of this in a, a poem by Alice Walker, which kind of just struck my fancy. It's called, I Will Keep Broken Things. And I like it because it talks about very home-like things, the things, and, and not all of us do this. We're all encouraged now to get rid of things as soon as they break. But some of us keep things because they have sentimental attachments or... Um, whatever, um, or because they mean things, because they connect us to our histories and to each other. So, Alice Walker, I will keep broken things. I will keep broken things, the big clay pot with raised iguanas chasing their tails, two of their wise heads sheared off. I will keep broken things, the old slave market basket brought to my door by Mississippi, a jagged hole gouged in its sturdy dark oak side. I will keep broken things, the memory of those long, delicious night swims with you. I will keep broken things. In my house, there remains an honored shelf on which I will keep broken things. Their beauty is they need not ever be fixed. I will keep your wild, free laughter, though it is now missing its reassuring and graceful hinge. I will keep broken things. Thank you so much. I will keep broken things. I will keep you, Pilgrim of Sorrow. I will keep myself. And in an odd sort of way, or maybe not odd, I find this acceptance of the idea that we are broken, each of us, all of us, that our relationships are broken, 
And that the keeping of them, the acceptance of that, does not depend on fixing things. I actually think it depends more on sitting down and listening, to be honest. Um, but there, there is hope there in the, that permission to keep what is broken. So there's, there's hope in a lot of the things I've been reading, too. And there is this um, appreciation of the self. There is this under, deepening understanding of the self that I, I think actually is in uh, Alice Walker's poem. <clears throat> there is, Wendell Berry has a poem, um, which the title is, 2007, comma, VI, and I don't know if VI stands for Virgin Islands or if it stands for the numeral six, and it's from a book. I didn't have the book. I had a collection of things. Um, but the, the first line of the poem is, it is hard to have hope. And the last line of the poem <coughs> is, when the people make dark the light within them, the world darkens. So it's not a happy poem, and I wasn't sure. I don't want to read the whole thing. But in the middle of there, he talks about resisting the systems of the world by knowing our own places. And he means literally the the physical places where we live. Know your place. Watch the animals, the other people. Know this knowledge brings you power. That Not power. It brings you a place to stand, a place from which to speak to your fellow human beings. Um, And he says, found your hope then on the ground under your feet. Your hope of heaven, let it rest on the ground underfoot. No place at last is better than the world. The world is no better than its places. Its places at last are no better than their people while their people continue in them. So it is hard to have hope, but in this poem there is hope. There is hope for us and for the earth we live in. Wendell Berry also says, he has a poem, it's a short poem, called Our Real Work. He says, it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work, and that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. So sometimes I think we go, oh, how much worse can it get? Well, wait, don't ask that question. Um, and we, we, we dwell on the fact that everything seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And sometimes things have to get that bad before things, before the work starts. And... Um, so I find this helpful. There was a really nice, um, John O'Donohue, who is a Celtic um, poet and teacher, has a poem. He has a book, his last book was To Bless the Space Between Us. Someday I'll, I will do a sermon on blessing, I think. Um, but there's a blessing in here for one who is exhausted. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. Then all the unattended stress falls in on the mind like an endless increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. 
Things you could take in your stride before now become laborsome events of will. Weariness invades your spirit. Gravity begins falling inside you, dragging down every bone. The tide you have never valued has gone out, and you are marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down, and you cannot push yourself back to life. You have been forced into empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished. There is nothing else to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken in the race of days. At first, your thinking will darken and sadness take over like listless weather. The flow of unwept tears will frighten you. You have traveled too fast over false ground. Now your soul has come to take you back. Take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rushed through. Be inclined to watch the way of rain when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Stay clear of those vexed in spirit. Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels they have all the time in the world. Gradually, you will return to yourself, having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells far within slow time. In a sense, it's another sit down and be quiet poem, I think. Um, We won't all get to exhaustion at the same time, I hope. But getting there... Being in that point where there is nothing you can do right now happens. It happens to all of us sooner or later. Well, maybe not all of us. Many of us sooner or later. And I find in this poem sort of it's, there's a way through that. And it's very reassuring to me that we can leave ourselves behind. We can try. But our souls come to take us back. When everything else starts shutting down, our souls come to take us back. And we do return to ourselves. That's the hope in this poem. Where are we on time? Okay. So, a word about humor. I loved the story. Thank you, Tully. Um, there's another, there's an Islamic story that I love that's about not judging people for what they look like. But it also speaks to this idea that sometimes wit is a good strategy. Cleverness is a strategy for opening up how people see things, shifting our perceptions. Um, you know, Wendell Berry's got one of my very favorite Wendell Berry. Nobody else ever seems to read this one, but I do. Um, in the country of marriage, the collection, he has a, a poem titled The Mad Farmer's Love Song. It's two sentences long. Oh, when the world's at peace and every man is free, then will I go down unto my love. Oh, and I may go down several times before that. And I just like that. It's very human. It's, I long for things for everyone to be free. And I will be, I will be ecstatic to be with my love when that is true. And Oh, by the way, yeah, I'm going to love in the meantime, too. That is, that, is, that is wit there. I like that. 
the, um, the story, there's a, a, a trickster sort of character throughout Islamic lands. The stories, many of them are found in many, many countries. Um, and the character is called the Honorable Joha or Mullah Nasruddin or Nasruddin Hoja, variations on those names. But this story is the Honorable Joha, Mullah Nasruddin Hoja feeds his coat. And I'm going to recap it for you instead of telling you. It's Ramadan, right? So um, observant Muslims are fasting from the morning until, you know, all while the sun's up. And um, one night there's a feast. And um, everyone around has been invited. And the Honorable Joha has been working all day in his fields. And as he's coming home, realizes he's going to be late for the feast. And during Ramadan, those feasts that are breaking the fast, they never wait for important guests or unimportant guests to arrive. They start on time. Everybody's hungry. And he's like, oh, no, I'm all dusty from the fields. Do I go, is it worse to be late or is it worse to show up in my dusty clothes? Well, I'm really hungry. I've been working hard today. I'm going to go on to the feast. He goes to the feast. And everybody just kind of dismisses him. People will, you know, if they end up standing next to him like they have to talk to him, they look him up and down and see all the dirt on his clothes and kind of get away as quick as they can. So after, you know, this happens a couple of times, he goes home, gets changed, put on his best clothes, and comes back. And suddenly he's this big dignitary. And he gets the best seat at the table beside the host, and the food gets brought out, and the food gets passed around. And the kafta, the little meatballs, come around, and he tucks one in his sleeve. And the grape leaves come around, and he tucks one in his turban. And his, you know, the next dish comes, and a chicken leg into the other sleeve. And finally, everybody's just staring at him. And his host says, what on earth are you doing? He said, well, it was obvious from the reaction that I got when I came here in my dirty work clothes that what was actually invited to this feast was not me, but my clothes. So I am feeding my coat. <laughs> So this is the kind of wit, I think, that is called for sometimes to, to help people shift the way they're seeing things, to say this is kind of stupid what you're doing here, the way you're proceeding. And so stories and poems are a way that we do that. And finally, I want to I leave you with Richard Blanco, who was the Ware lecturer um, at General Assembly. And... Um, some of my favorite things are some of his poems, and I, couldn't, I could hardly decide which one to read. Um, and he talks about um, thinking a lot about his, well, the title of his book is How to Love a Country. I love that. And he talks about how being the inaugural poet for one of Obama's inaugurations made him come to terms with his relationship to country as a Cuban who'd never, he was actually born, I think, while his parents were in exile in Spain and then immigrated as an infant to the United States with his parents. But as a Cuban American, he has a very complicated relationship to country, as you might imagine, and a lot of his poems speak to that. Um, but the last poem in the book is called Cloud Anthem, and if you will, let's see. Yeah, I'm not going to read it because it's kind of long. If you really want to, and if, uh, if we don't have, you know, we can use that during the second hour. But it's, it's until, it's, it, every sentence starts with until. And it's until, until we tame the riot of our tornadoes, 
until we are clouds meshed within clouds, sharing a kingdom with no king, a city with no walls, a country with no name, a nation without any borders or claim, until we abide as one together in one single sky. That's the end of the poem, but the rest of it is lovely too. But my favorite thing about, I was at General Assembly this year and saw Richard Blanco and he signed my book and one for my mother. Um, but my very favorite thing about him was what happened at the end of the Ware Lecture. He's, he's read us beautiful poems, many out of this book, and we saw a few multimedia things because he had slides and somebody had um, used one of his poems. Um, but at the very end, we're all applauding, and the person who introduced him has come back to walk him off the stage, and he says, I wonder if I could do something. I have always wanted to curtsy. And I've never been sure that any audience that that, that would be okay with, but I think you are the people. And he stepped to the side of the podium, and he curtsied to us. And it was such... Um, it was such a moment of, you understand me, I know you do, you Unitarian Universalists, and also I have come, and you know, he's in his 50s, I've come at this point in my life where I can speak freely about who I am as a person, and I want to be myself with you, and I trust you. It was a moment of relationship, it was a moment of community, and it was one of my favorite moments of the year, to be honest. So I'm going to end there. I have a benediction from Lin-Manuel Miranda back down here. I want you to you know, find your own favorite things. What sustains you? What gives you hope? Where do your desires call? Pay attention. Sit down and think about it if you need to. But from our friend Lin-Manuel... Good morning. Don't wait on anyone to make your favorite thing. Make your own favorite thing. Go. Good night. Don't let anyone set parameters on your dreams. Your dreams are yours and yours alone. Go. Go.